0: Well, good evening again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke, the book of Luke. As we look at joy tonight, we'll be looking at the Song of Mary, uh, Luke chapter 1, and we'll be on page 856 in the Black Bibles. If you want to grab one of those, uh, that you'll see under the chairs there. Page 856, Luke chapter 1. Sometimes this is called the Magnificat, which is uh, the Latin for magnify. This is where Mary is magnifying the Lord. She's singing a song. To the Lord, or at least reciting a poem. Uh, it's a formal, beautiful, structured uh, saying here uh, that Mary is using to rejoice. first line is, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So we're uh, using this tonight to dwell on what it means to rejoice in God. What does uh, joy mean for us? The incarnation literally is God taking on flesh. So John One gives us more of the the nitty-gritty of that. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And here, Mary is singing about this from the perspective of being the one that's going to give birth to this Messiah, this king that's come to save his people. Um, So, kind of the big idea is that rescue brings joy, right? They've been waiting a long time to be rescued. They've been waiting for a, a hero, a Messiah, and now the day has finally come, and now she's rejoicing. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us. God, we receive your word as a gift. And I... I pray, God, that your spirit would meet us here and you would teach us what you have for us. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy that the incarnation brings. And we pray that you would supernaturally change us so that we would be a people of joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 18 years ago, I was at my office. I was at the time uh, just 24 years old. I was a junior high pastor in Temple. And uh, I was at my office at the church there, and my wife came by, and she'd just been at the doctor that day, and she was all excited, and she had this little piece of paper that said, I guess, positive or something like that, right? It was a positive test result. She found out that we were expecting our first child, and we were excited. I mean, we were rejoicing, right? She was squealing. I picked her up and squeezed her and spun her around, and... We were happy. I think she was crying. She usually cries when she's happy. Um, so we were rejoicing. And of course, in the moment as well, I sat down and, and composed a formal hymn and, and sang that to the people there uh, that were with me as well, right? Because that's just what we do in our culture. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that part. But we did celebrate, right? There was, uh, there was yelling and crying and happiness and rejoicing. We didn't, we didn't compose a formal song, but in Mary's culture... That was a pretty normal thing. In a lot of ancient cultures, it was normal for them to compose a formal piece, to write a poem, or to write a song to recite, to to celebrate, to, to say, this is awesome. God has done something great, and I am now formally rejoicing. And as I've been thinking on this and dwelling on this, I realize we're not, we're not really big on rejoicing in our culture. Because not only do we not want to look foolish in spontaneous rejoicing, but we also don't want to go to all the extra effort of, of planning it and writing out a way to celebrate and to rejoice in something. And so this is a challenging text, I think, because here we see a regular person. Um, we see Mary rejoicing uh, as an example for us of someone of faith, someone recognizing that God is great, and I'm going to rejoice in what God is doing, bringing a Savior to the world. I think as we think about this, as we think about Uh, Mary's terms magnify and rejoice, which I think kind of set the tone for the whole song here, the whole piece here, is to think about how John Piper talks about the phrase magnifying God. Um, Sometimes we talk about glorifying God, or magnifying God, or finding joy in God. And when you think about magnifying, it's easy to think of a magnifying glass, right? Have you ever used a magnifying glass? Uh, I think probably everybody over 40 has used a magnifying glass, but, you know, kids play with them too. Um, Magnifying glass takes something small and it makes it bigger, right? But we need to be careful we don't think of magnifying God in that sense. That's not what we're doing when we magnify God. Piper says it's more like a telescope. A telescope takes something that appears small and helps us to see how big it really is, right? A a telescope helps us to see things that are far, far away. There's a great distance between us and that thing, the, the... planet or whatever it might be that is enormous, but it seems tiny to us. And so that's really maybe a better way to think of magnifying. So to magnify God or to rejoice in God or to glorify God is to see God for who he really is. Because a lot of times we get in the way, our distance gets in the way, our sin gets in the way, whatever it is, our circumstances get in the way, we don't really see God for how great he really is. And so that's what Mary is doing here. She's rejoicing in God. She's She's entering into one of those moments where she really sees Him for how, how big He is, how awesome He is. And that's, that's what happened at the Incarnation. So when we talk about Christmas, when we talk about Advent, the arrival of a notable thing or person or event, we talk about the Incarnation, God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We're talking about God breaking in and us now seeing Him. Jesus told His disciples, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. We've seen Him. In Jesus, we've we've seen God. So the first thing that we see as this unfolds is that Mary talks about uh, the joy that she has personally. She uses very personal human terms here, her own humility she kind of brings into the picture. So I want to talk about how the incarnation brings human joy. The incarnation brings human joy. And what I mean is it's just like for regular people like you and me. Uh, joy is not something f- just for superheroes, right? We often think in the history of the church, Mary is exalted as a kind of superhero saint. Um, and we want to honor her and call her blessed, as we see in the text, right? But it's, she's blessed because of what God is doing in her life. And we're ordinary people that are also blessed by what God has done in our life through Jesus. And so we want to focus in on the human perspective here. If you want to talk more about traditional views of Mary, I'd be happy to talk about that offline But I don't think that's where the text is going, so just for tonight, we're going to focus on where the text goes, right? So in verse 46, it says, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Just to clarify, there's there's two uh, Greek words for rejoice. Um, One is a general word for kind of like feeling of happiness uh, that could almost be translated as happiness, exactly, you know, it's almost the exact same word as happy. Um, This word is more of a word for like shouting out to God. It's more of a word for for singing, or uh, we might say hooting and hollering. Is that like, y'all know that that phrase? Right, like uh, screaming out, right? Just getting excited, being giddy. So that's more of this kind of verbal word here. My soul rejoices, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. So he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's saying, talking about herself, she's humble, she's lowly, she's a servant, and God's looked at her and blessed her. And he says, uh, and then we'll just stop there. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she's humble. She's a servant. Generations are going to call her blessed. Because he is mighty, and he has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you see her focus away from her humility? She starts there. I'm humble. I'm humble. God's looked at my humble state, and she she kind of brings us up to how big God is. For he is holy, for he is mighty, he is great, his name is holy. And, and so she's, she's helping us, again, not to, not to glorify Mary. She, she's, she's not saying, look at me how awesome I am. Is she blessed? Are we calling her blessed? Are we looking back at her example and thinking God's done something wonderful here? Yes, but... As we do that, as we look at Mary, we see human joy and we see someone giving us a picture of rejoicing in God, saying God is mighty, God is big, God is holy, he's doing these great things. And that's, that's the example of faith that we have in Mary. Just like Abraham, we look back at Abraham and we don't say, I want to imitate every single thing Abraham ever did. No, he did some stuff we don't want to imitate, but we see his faith. And so he's our, our father by faith, we see someone who trusted God. Or King David, or, or many of these other Bible characters, we look back at them and we are to emulate their, their faith, their trust in God, their, their vision that God is great, their rejoicing in God. So we want to rejoice in God as a regular human person, someone who trusted, someone who had supernatural trust. I have an old yearbook picture here I found online. I'm guessing this is from the 50s or 60s, just kind of guessing from the black and white and how everybody's dressed. Um, and I use this to remind you, probably many of you have had old photos taken. Have, have you ever had a photo uh, that you didn't like, maybe that you didn't, you didn't keep, you threw it away, because it, it just wasn't your best angle? Has that ever happened to you? Um, we, we all have pictures where there's pictures that we like it because it makes us look good, right? And then there's pictures we don't like so much because they make us look not so good. Now the reality is in everyday life, That's what we are, right? We're the good side and the bad side, but we want to keep the pictures that just show our good side, right? Um, We want to keep the good side and, and not the bad side. And so I just use that as a picture to remind us of our humble estate and that with the good and the bad, none of us are superheroes, none of us are perfect, none of us are sinless. God wants to bring joy into our mundane good side, bad side human life. I want you to get that. God wants to use us. This is hard for me to remember too. When I struggle, I think, "Oh man, it's all falling apart." You know, everything's—it's all a house of cards. Everything's going to fall apart because I messed up in this area. No, God, God wants to use us, the, the good and the bad. And I want to encourage you that God uses regular people like you and me. He wants to use us, and He wants to allow us to experience this joy of seeing how mighty He is, as Mary says. He's looked on my humble estate, but he's mighty. He's done great things. Holy is his name. I was thinking about what keeps us from rejoicing in God. What keeps us as regular people from rejoicing in God? And I think just one of the cultural issues that we wrestle with in this time and place where we live, our culture is cynicism. Um, cynicism is such a, just a common part of our culture of, of uh, basically kind of standing back, protecting your heart, trying to m- not look foolish, right? Being too cool to get involved. Um, I, I'm guilty of that as well. I think if we're, if we're really amazed at how big God is, we, we begin to lose our self-awareness in the sense of we just don't really care that much anymore about our image. So I wanted to talk about the, the yearbook picture thing as well. Like, wouldn't it be great if you just didn't care how you looked? And I don't mean this in an extreme way, like, you know, you just look gruesome and ugly and you don't get the stuff out of your teeth before you go out or whatever. I, you know, I don't mean it in an extreme way, but I just mean, like, what if you just didn't care? You just lived life with reckless abandon and your only concern was to love God and love other people. Wouldn't that be awesome? But we're often so caught up with, with being cool and not wanting to take a risk and not wanting to step out there, not wanting to put ourselves out there that we don't get to actually experience joy. Because I think. Human joy looks foolish to other humans because other humans are going to see us rejoicing in God and they're going to say, well, what are you doing? Or who does, who does he think he is? Or who does she think she is? Or what, you know? what's going on there? They look foolish. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how uh, the gospel looks like foolishness to some. It looks like foolishness to some. And, and I am of the conviction that that if you want to have an impact on the world around you, you're going to have to risk looking foolish. For some of you, that's anathema. That's like the worst thing you could imagine. I want to challenge you that God has bigger things for you than just preserving your image. And God wants you to experience real human joy. And if you experience real human joy, you're going to, sometimes you're going to look foolish. Other people are going to think you look stupid. That you're rejoicing over something not worth rejoicing over but I think if the gospel really impacts us if we if we really see him if we really realize how humble we are how broken we are and we really realize how great and how holy he is the gospel message says God is a savior to humble people like us and he takes us in our humble estate and he forgives our sins through the cross but on the cross he absorbed the wrath of God all our sins were forgiven and forgotten through the cross And and we get the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he delights in us. That, That should make us a little crazy, right? We should be willing to rejoice. And again, this word for rejoice, this is an out loud word. This is not the inner, you know, that inner joy thing that no one can see. Have you all heard that taught before? That's one of my pet peeves of Christianity. No offense to you if you've taught that in a Sunday school class before. But we're often taught that, right? Like, well, happiness is circumstantial, but joy is deep and abiding and stoic, and no one will ever see it. No, that's not, that's not what it means. Joy and happiness are pretty much the same thing, and that's why I really like this text, because this is this other word that's more like just babbling out loud, like saying something. I'm happy, saying it out loud. People are going to see it. Joy is something that people can see. So we're going to look foolish sometimes. Here's a, a final example of that, and we'll move on to the next point. A final example of this is the father of the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son, uh, or Tim Keller talks about the, the story of the the two prodigal brothers, right? The two brothers. Uh, but when the, when the prodigal comes back, the father runs out to greet him in a way that is foolish in his culture. His son has shamed him. He sh- that son should be dead to him. But the father's love drives him to run after him. He says he hiked up his robe, right? And he run, you know, old, old men didn't run in that culture. People didn't hike up their robe and look foolish like that. But he did that because his love drove him To do that. That's the kind of love Jesus says God has for us. And that's the kind of foolish love we should have for each other. That's the kind of way we should rejoice in God and rejoice in what God is doing in other people's lives. So I think if we really have joy in the incarnation, we're going to, sometimes we're going to look foolish, but it's going to, it's going to be something that people will be able to see and it will make an impact. The next thing that Mary goes on to is that the incarnation brings reversing joy. So this is kind of a turning of the tables of the world. This is a flipping things around. Um, This is changing the system that we're used to. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So this is a complete reversal of everything the bringing down the mighty from their thrones. I was thinking about when the, uh, when the Soviet Union fell, uh, when I was a young man. This is a picture of Stalin that's been torn down in the former Soviet Union. You have two little kids just sitting on this uh, torn down statue. It's a beautiful picture of the humble being exalted uh, and the exalted being humiliated, right? And, and so just to clarify, God... God doesn't uh, hate all people that have positions of power and authority, right? It's not like automatic, if you have money, you're going to hell, or automatic, if you're in command, you're going to hell. So just I don't want you all to worry uh, too much. The, the idea is our, our heart posture before God, right? Do you have a posture of humility where you recognize your own sin and your own brokenness and your own need of Him? Do you recognize your need of God? The, the way it's defined, this reversal of the world system is defined by verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy is for those who fear him. And, and fear, I, I, don't think, I don't think we always think about that in quite the right way because of how we use the word in our language. The way I would set it up is, is like this. Uh, if, if all you can think about is how much money is in your account, then you fear money more than you fear God. Or if, if all you can think about is, is the network of relationships around you and you can't think of anything else and it's driving you to dysfunctional living, then you fear relationships more than you fear God. Or uh, say it's your career, right? If all you can think about is how to make it to the next level, for more prestige or more money or more respect at work or a better job, then you, you fear career more than you fear God. So I believe what this is saying is, is an awe and a proper respect for God, recognizing that God is the real Savior, and the other things that we prop up are false saviors that are not going to save us. And so I believe that's what he's talking about here, and that's kind of the biblical theme of the fear of God. And his mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy is for those who recognize that God is the only one that has the right to judge us, to say whether or not what we've done is right or wrong, and that God is the only one that can save us from our own sin. And again, that's what the cross tells us. That God not only is the one that judges our sin, but he's also the one that forgives our sin, that shows us mercy for that sin. So my my question for you is, does this passage about God reversing the ups and downs of life, does that scare you or does that encourage you? Does that scare you or encourage you? And I want to address just one more category of person here. Um, There's some of you, that are maybe so humble you think God can't forgive you? And I want to challenge you that that's actually a form of pride. Um, if you're so humble that God can't forgive your shame or your brokenness, what you're really saying is, I'm more powerful than God. I'm just that shameful. I'm just that sinful that God can't handle me, right? And that's really, that's really a form of pride. So, So you're really back in the pride boat. Those who are truly humble say, God, I can't do it, but you can. That's true humility is to see yourself rightly, to recognize you are broken. There may be shame, there may be sin that you cannot fix, but God can fix it. God can do something about that because God is the one that reverses these things in our lives, and that's why we would have joy. God will rescue us. God will reverse our fortunes. We can trust Him to do that. And again, we have to remind ourselves that we don't know the timing he's going to do that in right like i don't know if I don't know if he's going to cure me of my disease this week or in eternity. I don't know if he's going to make all things right this week or in a thousand years, but I know he's going to do it. I know he's fixing the world. He said thats that's what he's doing, and the down payment, the promises, the spirit he's given to me. It reminds me of that reality. And objectively, I see the reality of him coming to us in the cross and in the incarnation and his life and death and resurrection for us. So he's proven his intentions through Jesus that it's it's the end of the old order. The old way of doing things is passing away and being reversed. God is saving the world. The last thing that Mary points out is the incarnation brings long-awaited joy. Long-awaited joy. This is something... Uh, that's been coming for a long time. It, it's rooted in history. Um, and as people living in the 21st century, I think sometimes we, we long for a connection with the past. Um, she says in verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Right. So remembrance is saying He's, he's remembering something that He said and promised before, and now He's drawing on that now. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So she's saying this is rooted in the past. This isn't something that just happened in the first century. Um, Christianity is not like a plan B. It's not some newfangled religion that just showed up on the scene, but it's, it's rooted in the history of the world. Um, we see this very clearly here. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, this is my gospel. He says, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So that's always a part of the Gospel, um, that that this was part of the plan, right? That Jesus shows up in accordance with everything that's been said before. If you study all the covenants that God made with all of His people in the past, with Noah and uh, Abraham and Moses and King David and all these other covenants that were set up, all of those are fulfilled in Jesus. It makes sense of the whole Old Testament. like. Jesus is what makes the Old Testament work. It's this great uh, work. It's this great story. It's this great collection of books. But there's this tension that only Jesus can resolve. Of a God who demands justice and he's holy and he's angry at sin. And a God who's forgiving and gracious. That only makes sense in Jesus. So Jesus comes along in accordance with this long-awaited hope. With these long-awaited promises. With these long-awaited covenants that have been made already, and he fulfills what has happened before. Um, And I think we have to beware in our culture, because we're in this strange time in history where we're disconnected from history, right? We have a a school system that doesn't really teach history for the most part, Um, and most of us don't read books. I include myself in in that kind of culture. I had to learn reading as an adult, really. (laughs) I didn't really read that much until I became an adult and started growing in my faith. Um, So a lot of us don't read. We're kind of disconnected from history. We live in this weird world where we're you know, just shot images all the time, out of order, 24-hour news cycle. Um, and we can fall prey to people that are coming up with conspiracy theories and appearing to know stuff, right? We Google stuff online and think, oh, I found this thing about this ancient document, and it must be true. I was hearing someone talk the other day about you know, some hidden gospel that the Vatican is hiding. And there's always these weird conspiracy theories coming out. I found this... Uh, Old papyrus. This is some ancient, uh, it's not hieroglyphics, it's called heretics, I think. It's like a cursive form of hieroglyphics. So it's like an Egyptian writing, but not exactly the same as hieroglyphics. And I show that to you just because I think old ancient documents are cool. I liked the Indiana Jones movie, the National Treasure, all that kind of stuff, right? And it's, it's kind of exciting because we kind of float out here in this modern world disconnected from our past. Sometimes we're excited to find a connection with the past, to find a connection. With history, we we want roots, right? We feel like a rootless people, and I want to encourage you to not fall prey for false roots, right? Don't don't fall prey to this conspiracy theory stuff that's out there, but study the text itself. Dig deeper in what is the most reliable um, ancient text the world has ever known, right? Like if you study uh, the preservation and um, recording of ancient texts, the, the Bible stands in this class way beyond any ancient texts that we've ever had, right? Like, they, they have a few copies of Julius Caesar, but they have thousands of copies of the New Testament. You know I mean? There's just this, it completely outweighs it. It's been preserved at a level that's just mind-blowing. So by the standards of history, the Bible outweighs every other historical document that's ever existed, that we've ever had, just by far. The Bible can stand up to your questioning. The Bible can stand up to your study, to your scrutiny. Don't just say, eh, it's hard to read, so I'm going to watch the History Channel and then fall for the junk on the History Channel, right? That's what we do. We're this internet TV generation and we're too lazy to actually study it and then we hear some random thing, oh, that gives me a good excuse to not obey God, so I'll just go my merry way. No, it's real. It's real and it's rooted in history. It's this long-awaited promise and story that jesus makes sense of so i encourage you to don't don't fall for that stuff when i first became a christian i spent a lot of years just studying uh, what's called apologetics trying to answer questions i had god's god's not afraid of your questions i I would encourage you to do that if you have questions study and by the way googling is not studying okay i'm sorry googling is not studying if you want to read real books i'd be happy to help you find some real books uh, but Googling is, is not studying. Study for real. Study the text. Study books about the text. Understand the context of where it comes from. These are these long-awaited promises. Right, going all the way back to the creation of the world, the Bible tells us that we were created good. We fell into sin. At the very beginning, God made a promise to Eve. And he said, someday a son is going to be born to you. A son is going to be born to humanity a son is going to come that's going to crush the serpent. And we see that fulfilled in Jesus. As I said, we see, it, we see Jesus fulfill all of the promises made before, but that promise starts all the way back at the very beginning of the book. And there's this thread that goes through the whole story that ties it all together. It's coherent. It's rooted. It's long-awaited. Don't just buy into the religion of the age, right? The zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Don't, don't buy into that, but question it. Be willing to think critically and to study and to do the hard work of of doubting what everybody else around you believes. I love the way Tim Keller says it in his book, The The Reason for God. He says, be willing to doubt your doubts. Don't just use your doubts as an excuse to run away from God, but be willing to do the hard work of study and doubt your doubts. Be willing to work through them. Be be willing to chase them down and, and look deeper and ask good questions just because a college professor said it doesn't make it true. Um, I'm like a lot of you. I went to college and all of my professors told me that Christianity was idiotic. And we had some good conversations. I actually uh, got to debate with them some and ask good questions, but it, it drove me to study more. Um, I don't think I won over any of those college professors, but it definitely made me study and learn my faith at a deeper level. So don't just believe it because someone with a Ph.D. says it or someone on TV on the History Channel says it or someone on Google says it, but study for yourself. Pursue, dig into these texts and and read it uh, on your own. Well, I want to wrap up by just thinking about this idea of the Incarnation. Uh, The pattern throughout the New Testament is um, we love because he first loved us. We forgive because he forgave us. We have joy because God had joy in loving us. So God has this joy in, in saving us and in adopting us and making us a part of His family. He, he wants you for His own. He, he wants to choose you and put you into His family and hold you close to Himself. And so there's this great incarnation joy that God has. As John 1 says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God rejoices in us. Zephaniah 3.17 that says that God rejoices over us with loud singing. That's the picture we have of God. God takes joy in you. And so because of that, because of the good news of Christmas, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, because of that good news, because of that great story, we can rejoice in him and rejoice in others. Be willing to look foolish for the sake of others. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we thank You for the grace that You've given to us in Jesus. We pray that You would teach us to rejoice. We pray that You would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.